This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Thursday. We are doing endocrinology questions. Daphna, how are you? Phew. Still trying to figure out my mnemonic. Yeah, that mnemonic doesn't work. It do, does work. It does, it does work. work. <laughs> it's a G flat, a G flat, and a P. <laughs> it's a G flat and a P. It's the anterior pituitary. Send us your comments <laughs> if uh, <laughs> if you know this mnemonic. Flat pig is the one that I remember was everywhere when we did like uh, MCATs and all that stuff. Yeah, with a little I. Fine. Mm -hmm, Flat mm -hmm. pig. Okay. All right. I don't know why you would think of a flat pig when you're thinking of anterior pituitary, but it's stuck. (laughs) All right. Do you want me to ask you the first question? No, I'm asking you. You go. Let's go. Maybe I should have taken this one. Okay. Question 11. A neonatologist calculating. I know. The neonatologist meets with a pregnant woman at 36 weeks gestation with Graves' disease. They love asking about maternal graves. Her condition has been well controlled and there have been no signs of fetal distress. Which of the following statements about the effects of maternal Graves' disease on the fetus or the infant is false? Mm-hmm. Maybe I should have taken this question. Okay, A, a small number of no, infants. No, you're calculating. <laughs> A small number of infants may develop primary hypothyroidism. B, exophthalmus can occur in affected infants. C, fetal high drops can occur in affected infants. D, fetal hyperthyroidism typically develops during the second half of gestation. Or E, half of the neonates born to mothers with Graves' disease develop hyperthyroidism. Hmm. So let's let's go over... Grave disease a little bit, right? So, um, you have passage of maternal antibodies that are both stimulating and blocking to the baby. The baby can then mm-hmm. develop congenital hyperthyroidism, and this develops not always. Like I think it's like five percent of kids of of mothers with uh, grave. Now you're asking for um, the long. You're right. You're asking for the long. Which was saying the false? Yeah, the false. The false statement. Um, so a small number of, hmm. So the first choice is a small number of infants can develop primary hypothyroidism. I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, exophthalmus can occur in affected infants. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because we talked about Mm -hmm. the signs and symptoms of, um, hyperthyroidism, which Basically, um, you um, you you can have yeah you can have both types of, of antibodies and, and the, the symptoms include tachycardia right they they can have um, bounding pulses hypertension and so on um, yeah so I would say yes that's fine next fetal high drops can occur in the affected fetus yes that is true fetal hypertension typically develops during the second half of hyper, fetal hyperthyroidism during the second half of gestation. Um, 
I would have to look this up. I would have to cheat on this one. But mm. um, I'm going to say it's pl- possible. That sounds about true. Let's see what he was again. Half of the neonates to born to mothers with grave disease will develop hyperthyroidism. No, that's what we said in the beginning. Like It's actually only like 5%, if I remember. So um, maybe less than that, maybe more than that, but not 50%. So he is, he is the incorrect statement. <laughs> That's right. You didn't need to. You don't need to know all the facts. You just need to know most of them. Uh, it's actually one percent of neonates born to women with graves will be clinically affected, but it's certainly not fifty percent. Yeah. Okay. So half of the neonates born to mothers with graves disease develop hyperthyroidism. That is false. Thyroid disease, a very common entity in pregnancy. Graves disease occurs in 0.1% to 0.4% of all pregnancies. And like we said, only 1% of neonates born to a woman with graves will be clinically affected. The fetus or neonate is affected as a result of transplacental passage of thyroid-stimulating hormone receptor-stimulating and receptor-blocking antibodies during the second half of pregnancy. Remember, TSH can't cross, but thyroid-stimulating hormone receptor-stimulating and receptor-blocking antibodies can pass. Because stimulating antibodies are more often produced, most affected neonates will develop hyperthyroidism. However, a small number of infants may develop hypothyroidism if the amount of blocking antibodies crossing the placenta is greater than the amount of stimulating antibodies that are crossing. Evidence of fetal disease can be apparent even if the pregnant woman has inactive Graves' disease, so removal of the thyroid or destruction of the thyroid gland. Yeah, that's, um, the, that's, that's such an important fact, by the way. Can we just emphasize this for a second? Yeah. It's my favorite question to ask on our our huddle with OB with the OB team. When they say mom's hypothyroidism, I'm always like, "Why is mom hypothyroid?" and they're like, "I don't know why." And you're like, "We got to find out why." Like, does she have her thyroid still? What's the situation here? So so yeah, even if you remove the thyroid gland, um yeah, you've removed the, the target for these antibodies, right. but these antibodies, the we'll mother keeps cross. making. That's and right. so if she keeps making them because they have nowhere to stick to the mother because she had uh, a removal of thyroid, it still goes to the baby. And so I think that's that's such a good question because you could mm-hmm. say, well, yeah, the, the disease has been cured, but it's like for mom, not for the baby. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, intrauterine signs of fetal disease may include fetal tachycardia, growth restriction, and fetal hydrops. Even fetal demise can be seen. A fetal goiter may also be present. Post-birth, the symptoms of hyperthyroidism in a newborn are usually apparent within the first 10 days of life, though clinical symptoms can present up to four to six weeks of life. Mm-hmm. Thyrotoxicosis usually resolves by two months of age, but may last as long as five months. Mm-hmm. The signs and symptoms of neonatal hyperthyroidism is variable and include the following. Irritability and jitteriness, periorbital edema and exophthalmos, tachycardia, pulmonary hypertension, weight loss, diarrhea, sweating and flushing, advanced bone age, hepatosplenomegaly, bruising and petechiae, or goiter. Infants with evidence of thyrotoxicosis should be managed immediately with antithyroid therapies and symptomatic relief can be provided by beta blockade. Antithyroid options include uh, propylthiouracil or PTU and uh, carbamazole. Which is why also like an interesting question they could ask you is like, since you have antibodies, both stimulating, blocking, like 
at the end of the day, check for these uh, the the traps, right? The TSH receptor antibodies right. in the cord in the cord um, in mm. the cord blood. I think that's the that's the optimal way of approaching this pathology. Okay. All right. So then we're going to question twelve. Daphna, you are asked to evaluate an otherwise healthy, well-appearing four-day-old, four-day-old term newborn because of abnormal TSH concentration measured on the infant's newborn state screen. Uh-huh. The screen had been erroneously sent shortly after birth. Oh. The infant's breastfeeding well, normal voiding, and, normal voiding and stooling pattern. You speak with the family and you tell them that you plan to repeat the newborn screen, but, that, but you are not otherwise worried. And you are not otherwise worried because... Choice A, the infant is well-appearing without clinical signs of hypothyroidism. Choice B, the infant's reverse triiodothyronine, the RT3, is also elevated. Choice C, there's a TSH surge after birth, Mm -hmm. which markedly elevated TSH concentration compared to older infants. Choice D, the TSH concentration is suppressed at birth and takes several days to reach a normal level. Choice E, the TSH measurement, uh, the TSH measurement is not as reliable as measuring T4. Which one is the one that makes you not is the reason why you're not worried? <laughs> well, I probably might I might say A, but that's not really the right answer. <laughs> I mean the answer, you just have to know some of these endocrine graphs. You just have yeah. to remember them. And the one that sticks out to me the most is the is the TSH graph. There is this uh, as they say, marked spike of TSH in the first, what, 12 hours of life. And then it really plummets down yeah. to the the typical levels. And they gave us this hint that it was erroneously sent shortly after birth. So one of the biggest problems with measurements of things is when did you get it, right? Yeah. Um, and so if they sent it too soon, and not when we usually send it, you may still be in that spike. So I'd say C. That's correct. I call these the um, the errors of the interns, right? Where it's like, <laughs> you, you want to do so well, you get all the labs right away. And it's like, mm-hmm. but no. <laughs> but no, alas. But that's not the, the that's, uh, yeah, you try to do good, but it's not, uh, it's not appropriate. So the timing of the newborn state screen is critical, as we all know, to interpret the results of thyroid function studies. Typically, the newborn screen is performed between 36 to 72 hours after birth in a healthy term infant because the state screen uh, mm-hmm. of the infant in the vineyard was obtained shortly after birth, it may reflect the um, normal physiologic change that would be considered abnormal in an otherwise uh, situation. After birth, as you, as you mentioned, there's a dramatic increase in the serum thyroid stimulating hormone concentrations with level as high as 60 to 70 uh, milliunits per liter. While not completely understood, this process is thought to result from the infant's initial exposure to relatively cold atmosphere compared with the intrauterine environment. Mm-hmm. This TSH surge results in an increase in T4 and T3 concentrations. The concentration of T4 in the first week of life is usually the highest than at any other time during life. The T3 levels tend to rise after the first week of life and continue to increase during the first month of life. In contrast, concentrations of reverse T3 tend to decrease postnatally because of the increased action of diiodinase. Got it. You got it. Iodinase. You got it. Diiodinase D, as well as loss of placental diiodinase D3. 
3T4, and thyroid binding globulin follow a similar path as T4, usually exhibiting a peak in the first week of life, followed by a gradual decline. While an abnormally high TSH value would be concerning for congenital hypothyroidism, the infant in the vignette most likely has an elevated TSH because the screen was performed immediately after birth when the TSH is expected to be high because of normal physiologic adaptation. Okay. See you tomorrow. Yeah, buddy. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.